Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. Today we're going to refer to Matthew chapter 1 primarily. We'll also look in Luke chapter 3 uh, briefly, but uh, uh, as we turn to God's Word, this is the key concept for today. The child of Bethlehem is the Savior for us all. In this series of Advent messages, we're focusing our thoughts on the Christmas hymns and what are the truths that are embedded in the Christmas hymns that we sing throughout the season. And today's hymn that we're focusing on asks a question. And the question is this, what child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping? You know the song, we sing it regularly. That Christmas song actually, uh, the lyric, the Christmas lyrics of that song were added to a tune that already existed. The name of the tune is Green Sleeves. Now, that is an answer to one of the trivia quizzes for tonight. So, you should all get that one right. All right, that tune uh, shows up in the 1580s. We don't know much about the author or the origin of that tune. Uh, however, much later than that, an insurance salesman uh, named William Dix, who dabbled in poetry and, and writing hymns, took the, put the Christmas lyrics that we now know into that, uh, that tune, and all of a sudden we had a Christmas hit on our hands. What child is this? The song asks a question. And the question is a question about identity. And the Bible's way of answering questions about identity is in genealogies. Now, genealogies, the genealogies of Scripture, usually do not generate a lot of excitement. I don't know if you slavishly read through all the genealogies as you're doing your morning Bible reading. These are the passages of Scripture that we tend to kind of glance over lightly, but genealogies are important because genealogies are personalized history. They tell us who we are, where we fit in terms of those who have gone before us. And many today are growing in their interest about genealogy and family history and ancestry and that kind of thing. You see a lot of commercials on TV about kits that you can buy so that, and that you can test your DNA to see where people with your DNA structure come from uh, in the world. Last Christmas, I was given uh, a, a kit like that for, for Christmas. And so I took that tube and I spit in that tube and there's no way you can do that with dignity at all. <laughs> I did that, and I shipped it off to the company, and, and we waited for the results. We were wondering what was going to happen, what would be revealed. And when we got the test back, what it said was that my mother's family, that line was from Wales and England, and my dad's line was from Italy. Exactly what we knew before we sent the thing in. <laughs> It's exactly what my parents have always told me, but there you have it. Now I know scientifically it's true. But identity is the driving force behind the genealogies in the gospel. It is th their way of saying, this is who I am, this is my pedigree, this is my family. And famous and powerful people used to scan their genealogies and purge those people from their bloodline who didn't have a good reputation or weren't well thought of. We know that King Herod did that twice in his career, just kind of looking down the list and seeing somebody that he didn't really like cross that guy out. Genealogies. 
The Gospels are given, the genealogies in the Gospels are given to prove that Jesus is who he said he is. There's a scene in Matthew chapter 22 when Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. It says this, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. In other words, it was immediate. They knew full well, without any hesitation, that when the one true Messiah would come, he would have to come through the family line of David. And if someone came along claiming to be the Messiah who did not come from the line of the family of David, that's the ball game. He's a fake. He's a fraud. We don't have to follow him. And so Matthew and Luke both show us that Jesus is in the line of David. In fact, that's where Matthew starts. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. He says this, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right in the beginning, Matthew wants to get it started right away to tell us that Jesus of Nazareth has the pedigree to claim that he is the Messiah. That's the first thing Matthew wants us to know. Jesus comes from the right family. Luke also tells us Jesus' genealogy. Matthew starts with Abraham and then goes forward telling us about Jesus' family. Luke actually uh, goes backwards and takes us all the way back to Adam in Jesus' genealogy. Now, these differences exist because they're making two different points. Luke is writing to Gentiles primarily in his gospel, and he wants to make sure that the Gentile reader understands that Jesus is the Savior for all, for all people, not just the Messiah for the Jews. However, Matthew's gospel is written primarily to a Jewish audience, and he wants to convince the Jews that Jesus is their prophesied Messiah. So he makes it known right from the beginning that Jesus is the fulfillment of both the Davidic and the Abrahamic covenant. Both Matthew and Luke give us the genealogies. But as I mentioned a moment ago, they do it in opposite forms. Matthew shows us the list starting with the past, Abraham, and moves down to the present time. The very way you would find the list of the ancient kings of Israel. One king and then listed the successor king and then the successor king and the successor king, moving from one king to the next. And Matthew is mimicking that process on purpose because Matthew wants to convince his readers that Jesus has the legal right to be the Messiah. He is in the dynasty of David. He is the everlasting true king of Israel. Luke, however, lists the names in the opposite direction. Starting from the present, he works back to the past, going all the way to Adam. Because Luke wants to make the point, Jesus is one of us. Matthew wants to make the point, Jesus is king of us. And so they tell little different stories, little different focus in the way they list the genealogies. But the big thing you would notice if you would lay these two genealogies side by side and figure out, you know, where they correspond and so forth, you would notice that they are different. The lists overlap and the lists intersect, but they are not identical. Why is that? You would think that the genealogy would be identical. That is because while they both give Jesus' lineage 
Matthew shows us Jesus' lineage through Joseph. Luke shows us Jesus' lineage through Mary. And as you compare the lists, you find that they come together in an all-important place. They are both descendants of King David. Luke chapter 3, verse 23, now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, son of Heli. Heli is a form of the name Eli, and there it's listed as, he's listed as the father of Joseph, but we wouldn't call Heli the father of Joseph. We would call him his father-in-law. Now, this is unusual. Using the mother's lineage in a genealogy was unusual, but it is vital for Jesus. You say, well, why is it vital? Because notice what Luke said. He was thought to be Joseph's son. In reality, there was no blood connection between Joseph and Jesus. Jesus was the fulfillment of the prophecy we looked at last week, Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign and, will, and, will be, uh, and the virgin will be with child and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. You see, not only was it necessary that Jesus be born of a virgin to fulfill that prophecy, he had to be born of a virgin whose bloodline went back to David in order to fulfill the Davidic promise. He had to be physically by blood related to David to fulfill that expectation. And here's where it gets complicated. You say, I thought it was complicated already. No, here's where it gets complicated. The virgin who had the, in the bloodline of David had to be married to a man who was also in the bloodline of David, in the family line, because legally... In the eyes of the official day of, uh, you know, those who look at the, these official records, it is the father's genealogy that would be observed. That's the one that would be considered. And so in Luke chapter 3, verse 31, and Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, we see that in both lineages, they are descendants of David, both through his blood and through his adoption, Jesus uh, is in the line of David. Now, this is God perfectly working out all of the prophecies of the past. It's not like Mary and Joseph went on Match.com and in the comments said, I have to, I have to meet a man from the line of David just in case I'm going to have the Messiah. No, that's not it at all. This is God working these details out perfectly in order to keep the promises He has made in the past. A moment ago, we saw how Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy of the virgin birth, but he's also the fulfillment of the prophecy of the covenant with David. We see here his, his, his descendants. So the promise when God said to David, from you and your lineage will come the everlasting king, God kept that promise. But he's also keeping the promise to Abraham in Jesus. Matthew starts the genealogy focusing on Abraham, and he does that for a reason, as he targets the Jews reading his uh, version of the gospel story, Matthew realizes that for 2,100 years, there has been a promise ringing in the ears of God's chosen people, the Jews. 
And God made that promise to Abraham way back in Genesis 12. It says this, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, there's a few component parts to that promise. Uh, one part is that Abraham would eventually, his offspring would give birth to a populous nation. The other part of the promise is that populous nation would be living in the promised land where Abraham was when he received that, that promise. And by the first century, Jesus' time, both of those aspects are true. The, the Jews are a populous nation and they're living in the promised land. But the third part of the promise is, through your lineage, the whole world will be blessed. How was that kept? Well, that was kept in Jesus, because the Messiah for the Jews would first come to the house of Israel, but then that salvation was spread to the entire world, and that was always the plan. Through you, Abraham, the whole world will be blessed, his descendant, Jesus of Nazareth. And so the genealogies tell us some stories. They teach us some lessons, but they also show us some surprises. And the surprises in the genealogies are primarily found in Matthew's, Joseph's side of the bloodline. And surprise number one is that Matthew lists five women in Jesus' genealogy. Four of them are named, and one is unnamed. She's referred to in verse 7 as Uriah's wife. You know him as you know her as Bathsheba. So the, the women that are named are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Mary, and then Bathsheba is referred to. All of those are in the bloodline of Jesus through Joseph, his adopted father. Now, here's what we need to note. The purpose of genealogies primarily was to establish ownership property ownership. Property was assigned to families, and so if you want to exert your right to own a property, you have to demonstrate you're part of the family. Women didn't own property in this day. In other words, it was very rare to have a women mentioned in genealogies because there wouldn't be a purpose for it. They didn't own property. They didn't earn money. And most of the time, they were pretty much under the control of the closest male relative to them, whether their father or their husband. But Matthew takes the very rare occasion to put women in the genealogies and, and five of them and four of the five are not the kind of women you would expect to be mentioned in a genealogy if you're trying to make your family look good. So it's a surprise. For instance, Tamar. And each of these ladies teach us something about what God does and the way he works. Tamar teaches us that no one really deserves grace. Grace is given to us by a loving God. Verse 3 says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, the story of Tamar is a shocking story. It would fit very nicely if they were filming a series called The Real Housewives of Ancient Israel, <laughs> right? This is a sordid tale, sex and deception and greed. Judah had a son named Ur. Ur was married to Tamar. But the Bible tells us that Ur was such a wretched person that God actually uh, ended his life early. He died very young, and he died without children. 
And in the custom of the day, then it was the, the job of Judah to provide for Tamar, primarily to provide another husband. And there were sons involved that, that could have stepped up. And I won't go into all the details of the story, but make the long story short, uh, Judah does not want to provide for Tamar. And she waits, and she waits, wearing the widow's garb and, and all of that. But it's, it dawns on her, this man is not going to step up to the responsibility, and so she comes up with a plan. And the plan is, uh, she's going to sit by the side of the road where she knows Judah will pass, and she will sit there and pretend to be a prostitute. And sure enough, Judah comes by, she pretends to be a prostitute, and he elicits her services, and um, has, they have sex together. She's not no, he doesn't know that she is his daughter-in-law, and by now in the story you're thinking, these people ought to pay more attention, right? However, she's wearing a veil. Okay. Well... <laughs> I don't know how this goes, but anyway, she, but through that union, she becomes pregnant. Now, he has entrusted some of her, his possessions to her uh, to, on, on, to put on hold till he brings a proper payment for all of this kind of thing, okay? And if, when she's known to be pregnant, uh, the family or, and the people around her accuse her at the very least of being an immoral woman because she's a widow now, or at the very most, maybe she's a prostitute herself. And Tamar is able to produce proof that the person who is the father of these children inside of me is none other than Judah. And so Judah admits it, he, he humbles himself, and from that situation come Perez and Zerah, who are mentioned in Jesus' lineage. If this was a movie, you would not let your kids go. <laughs> but there it is. It's in the Bible, not only in the Bible, in the genealogy of our Lord Jesus. And it reminds us that God operates on the basis of grace. No one deserves grace, you know, no matter how we behave, maybe not like that, but God's grace is a gift, and it shows us the pain that comes with disobedience and warns against taking matters into your own hands and not stepping up to your responsibilities. Talk about family dysfunction, right? I mean, Jerry Springer has nothing on this. <laughs> but yet, there they are in the lineage of Jesus. And then there's Rahab and Bathsheba, and both of those ladies show us you're never too far gone for God. Faith can come to the least likely. Salvation can come to the least likely. Rahab was indeed a prostitute, and Bathsheba an adulteress. Look at verses 5 and 6. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David. Now, what's happening there is Matthew is collapsing history a little bit. And uh, Rahab, for instance, was an adult in the conquest, when, when, when a conquest of, of Jericho. Now, that was in Joshua's day. That was 400 years at least prior to King David. So it's very unlikely that she's actually the great-great-grandmother of King David. Matthew is collapsing the list. In other words, he's leaving some people out. He's doing that for a reason, and that is because he wants things to line up nicely. His genealogy is three lists of 14 names, nice and neat in a row. Have you seen The Chosen? Do you see the way that they depict Matthew? It's kind of a little OCD. That's kind of what we're picking up here. 
14 names and three lists. And some people, that means some people have to be left out. But look who he leaves in. He does it on purpose. He leaves in Rahab. He goes to great pains to leave her in. Not only was she a prostitute, but she's a Gentile. Surprising that she would be there. And then Bathsheba, who also bears guilt in the situation of adultery with David, even though we assign David the greater guilt, and rightly so. But you'd not think that these would be the people who would be listed in the lineage of Jesus. But yet here they are. And it reminds us, you do not dare to write anybody off. Do not dare to say that anybody's too far gone. And don't say that about yourself. Don't say that you've done too many bad things, you've seen too many bad things, and you've gone to many bad places. Don't say that about yourself because God can break through to where you are. No one is ever too far gone. And then there's Ruth. Ruth is in verse 5. She's mentioned there, uh, Obed, whose mother was Ruth. It reminds us that the gospel is for the whole world. Everyone can turn from their own old way of life. And, and Ruth is surprising, and she's surprising for one reason. She's a woman of virtue uh, and so forth, but she's surprising simply because of her background. She is a Gentile, and not just a Gentile. She is a Moabitess. She's from Moab. And the Moabites were a race of people born of the incest between Lot and his daughter. And they were often at war uh, against Israel. In Ruth's day, however, there was a period of peace. And in that period of peace, the races intermarried. And Naomi was Ruth's mother-in-law. She married a Moabite man. She moved to Moab and, and raised her two sons in Moab. They married Moabite women. But as the story unfolds in the book of Ruth, both Ruth's husband and her two sons died. Ruth there has no way of income. There's no source of support for her. And so she decides to go back to her, her hometown, just happens to be Bethlehem. And she goes back to Bethlehem. And, and by this time, however, Ruth is so fond of Naomi, her mother-in-law, that she decides to go with her to leave her nation, go back uh, to, uh, to Bethlehem in Israel uh, with, with uh, Naomi. And she says, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And so they return to that hometown of Bethlehem that will one day be called the city of David, but that's not yet. But there God blesses Ruth and Naomi, and Ruth marries a husband, Boaz. And out of the hated Moabites comes a relative of Jesus. And it tells me God has all races in mind. He sees past the distinctions, past the distinction of race or language or skin color. People that we might think would be excluded are not excluded. They're all welcomed into the family. And then there's Mary. Mary reminds us, never say no, even when what God asks you to do is hard. Look at verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Now, throughout these genealogies, there's a rhythm. There's a cadence to the way that they, they, they say it. But when you get to verse 16, the rhythm is thrown all off because Matthew wants to make it very clear that Joseph, while he was the husband of Mary, was not the father of Jesus. Mary was the mother of Jesus. 
But Matthew is not saying that Joseph was the father. In fact, specifically, the the word there in verse 16, it says, of whom was born Jesus. The of whom is singular. He's not saying Jesus was born to them. He's saying Jesus was born to her, born of a virgin. And that's all because there was a day when the angel came to Mary and said, you are going to be the mother of the Savior of the world. Luke 1, 38, her response, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. But that's going to be hard. It's going to be hard for her to have a, a child as a virgin, to have a husband who at first doesn't believe her, and then as a couple to face what they have to face. There are times when God nudges his people into things and says, I want you to lean into this, which seems impossible and it's certainly going to be hard. And when God says, I want you to do the hard thing, our job is to say, yes, I will do the hard thing and know that you will be my strength. God still asks us to do these things. Don't doubt that. Sometimes God will say, I know this is hard, but this is what I want you to do. And I will be with you, and I will never forsake you. And so what do we learn from all of these examples in the genealogies? Well, the first thing we learn is this. This faith that we have, this Christian faith, is based on history. What the, what the Christian faith is, is news. It's not advice. That distinction is absolutely essential for you to understand because most of the religions of the world are advice. Let me tell you how to do the rituals. Let me tell you how to appease the gods. Let me tell you how to make yourself worthy by following these steps. This is advice, not Christianity. Christianity comes along and says, let me tell you what has happened. God has come. We must react to that. This is news. Secondly, we learn from the genealogies that God is at work in all things. The names tell stories. The stories are stories of lives, and some of the lives that we see in these stories are well-lived, and some of the lives not so well-lived, but still they're part of the story. And I say that because Satan would want to take you hostage. He would want to make the memories of your failures the only thing you remember. And put that as your identity. The worst thing you've ever done, that's who you are. That's what Satan wants you to believe. But God comes along and says, I can redeem all of that. I can forgive all of that. You can still be part of my story. You're never too far gone. You can be a part of what God is doing in the world by faith. And thirdly, we learn Jesus' hope for all. The genealogies remind us that God has made promises and God keeps his promises. He keeps his word and he knows what's happening. He knows where it's all going. He promised a king would come and the king has come in Jesus. He promised that he would be a king for all nations and Jesus has the world in view. He promised he would come through Abraham's line and that's exactly what has happened. Hope has come in a baby. So what child is this? This, this is Christ the King. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you keep your word. We thank you that you make promises and you keep promises. 
And Lord, we trust that you will keep what you have promised to us. Thank you in advance for the blessings that we will experience as we follow you. In your name we pray. Amen.